Good morning, beloved. This Sunday, we start the second half of our year-long sermon series on earth as it is in heaven. This ministry year, we heard God's word in the fall from Daniel, and now we turn our attention to Revelation this spring. Daniel and John share a number of features in their lives, their services, their books. Both of them served God for decades. They witnessed the rise and dramatic fall of kings and emperors. They saw that God remained enthroned, that his will determined world events and his kingdoms everlasting. And most importantly of all, both of them saw Jesus Christ, Daniel in advance of his coming and John in expectation of his return. Both of these books of the Bible help us to see the Lord and better understand his ways. I hope you'll be singing all week, Show Me Your Ways. This book will help you to see God's ways. These books inspire a faithful following of Christ. They help us learn essential habits of discipleship. They alert us to temptations that we face in the world and from within ourselves. They help us to unmask the false pretensions of the world and fix our attention on the everlasting glory of God. These books purify our imagination and they clarify our hope and they compel our witness. Although these books sometimes feel unfamiliar and overwhelming, a careful reading, attentive hearing will help us to embrace a theological vision of reality. The role that we as the church have been assigned within God's saving action in the world. The manner in which evil is defeated and the world is repaired. We'll learn to pray with fresh resolve as Jesus taught his followers that God's will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. We're going to be going through Revelation over the next few months. And I want to invite you to a fresh reading, a fresh hearing, a fresh seeing. And so we've got these Revelation editions for everyone. And so I want to encourage you, these are on your seats, pick one up. If you didn't get one, there might be one unclaimed around you. And uh, these, this is the ESV text that is in the Pew Bible that we use. There are many great translations in the English of the Bible into English. We use the ESV at Kenwood just because it kind of strikes a middle ground between a, a literal translation and also uh, a dynamic equivalence in English. This edition, I want you to take one. Uh, some of you have asked, do we have to pay for that? You can add $5 to your offering if God stirs you to do that, okay? That's what it costs. So God bless you. That's between you and the Lord. If you walk out with a stack of these, that's between you and the Lord too, all right? But what's great about this, I actually want you to mark this up, okay? I want you to be an active listener in this series. I don't want you to just listen to the preaching. I want you to really engage with the text, there's room on the side margins to write. You can put notes in the text. I'm going to give you a couple instructions of things I want you to write down uh, this morning. On the back, there is, after the text ends on page um, 86, there are several pages additionally just for notes. And I want you to write, actually, on the top of this page, who is Jesus Christ? And I'll tell you why a little bit later. 
I want you to write who is Jesus Christ because that's what this book is about. When we look at the first verse, Revelation 1.1, this book is the revelation of Jesus Christ. To reveal means to pull back the veil. It's a dramatic moment in a wedding when the bride is unveiled and the joy of the husband to see her. In the Bible, there's a veil that separates God from his people inside the sanctuary. And so this book is an extended view inside the sanctuary. The veil is pulled back. The book is an unveiling of, of Jesus Christ. Sometimes people ask me, what is the book of Revelation about? And I want us all to be very clear about this. This book is about Jesus Christ. That's why the notes I want you to put on the first page, and I'm going to give you a spoiler alert, and I want you to reserve two pages, who is Jesus Christ. Because this book will allow you to see Jesus. It will fill your theological vision for who Jesus is right now this morning, what he's like, what he's doing in the world. The only Jesus that you walk away from is a small Jesus. When you see the real Jesus in Scripture, people fall down at his feet in worship. They give their lives willingly to bear testimony that he is the Savior of the world. They see this world and its pretensions to glory for what it is. They recognize evil because they see Christ clearly. Now, those of you who know me well uh, know that we have a daughter named Salome, and uh, we love our daughter. She's got a beautiful name, and so I just want that you to know that we do love the letter S in my home, and we value it. Our daughter's name starts with S, uh, but there's no S on the end of Revelation, okay? So somehow, because of love for the letter S, Christians slip this in. I don't know where it comes from. There's no textual evidence for this. But people refer to this book as revelations. And when you do that, you've made it about more than one thing. You've made it about a set of codes to be deciphered. That's not what it is. It's a pulling back of the veil, revelation, to see Jesus. Now, be kind in the hallways. This leaks into people. So when you hear someone in the atrium or at the volunteer lunch today and you hear someone say revelations, you don't have to pin them up against the wall. You can just, you can just maybe ask something subtle like, what's your favorite letter? You know, um, find ways to just creatively just, just pull it back. It's singular. It's about Jesus Christ. And notice that this is a revelation that God gave to Jesus. Do you see that? God gave Jesus this vision of him, his son that was then communicated to his servants, things that must soon take place. And there is in Revelation, time really is an important element in the drama of Revelation. Things that must happen soon. And some of you might be thinking, how soon is this? It's been at least 2,000 years. But that's to misread this language. Soon means it's 
imminently relevant for every generation of Christian. Soon means that the vision of Jesus describes things that are happening around us and that we must be attentive. The last important thing from the opening verse is the nature of the communication in the book. The ESV says he made it known. If you look in the Pew Bible, you'll see a footnote there that says, or signified. The King James translates this as signified. To signify means to use signs and imagery and symbols. And so part of being a good reader of Revelation is being alert to the imagery that fills the book. Revelation is filled with images of a dragon, books, swords, living creatures. The vision of Revelation, we must be attentive to the symbolism that fills the book, and much of the symbolism is defined by the book itself. Let's keep going. Revelation is a a book that is communicated to John who who bore witness. And you'll see in verse 2 that says that John, John bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus. Witness is a verb and testimony is a noun. In the Greek text of this verse, this is the verbal form and the noun form of the word martyr. Martyr means to bear witness. I might say sometime throughout this spring, can I get a witness? And you might say, amen, right? When you ask for a witness, you're asking for corroborative testimony of the truth of something. To bear witness is something we see happening in a court. There's an aspect to share our testimony. It's more than our life story. To give your testimony is to add the public evidence of your life to the truth of who Jesus Christ is. This book is filled with martyrs, which doesn't just mean people who die for their faith. A martyr is someone who bears witness, who martyrs the truth about Jesus. And as we'll see in the plotline of Revelation, The church is called to bear prophetic witness in the world to the truth of who Jesus is. And the church fails in its mission when we do not hold forth to the world a clear testimony of who Jesus Christ is. Who is Jesus? Note carefully. Part of the challenge of Revelation is that it has a lot of unique features. Now, over 30-plus years of being a Christian, 22 years of being a pastor, I've noticed at least two different groups of people. This is a generalization, but there's some truth to this. I've noticed people who are so interested in the book of Revelation, that's all they want to talk about. I I call them end-timers. I mean, they're into it. Charts, drawings, maps, headlines. On the other hand, I've met people who are terrified of this book. They're scared of it. They're scared of it because they don't understand it and and some of the imagery they find troubling at first glance. I want both of those groups and everyone else in between to have a fresh hearing. I want you to hear this text afresh and let it speak to us today, now, 
Revelation has a number of unique features that we have to learn to read well. Revelation has a pairing of verbs to hear and to see, which is often the case. John regularly hears something and then he turns and sees what it is. And the interplay between what he sees and hears, what he hears interprets then what he sees. Revelation, I hope to help you see, as I have been helped to see, that Revelation, singular, is a single vision, like a large painting, like a single work of art, like a play or a drama set before us. It has a single narrative plot line. Revelation makes extensive use of imagery and symbolism. Those who know me well know that although I'm a New Testament scholar, I deeply love the Old Testament. I'm married to an Old Testament scholar, and one of the joys of Revelation is that there are over 700 allusions to the Old Testament. Wow. Two in every verse. The imagery of Revelation flows out of imagery that's already been presented to us in the Bible. The theological vision of Revelation is profoundly beautiful. It's carefully constructed. It's brilliantly creative, and it will change your vision. We are not the first generations to live in a visual age. The first century was a visual age. But Revelation will sanctify your imagination. Revelation's inspired generations of artists and musicians It's a great book of the Bible for creative people. Revelation will teach us the essential habits of discipleship. Prayer, devouring God's word, faithful witness, disciple making. We learn the importance of worship. We will journey through Revelation. The further you go in the plot line of the book, you fall more in love with God and what he's done in Jesus Christ and you find yourself falling less in love with the world. It happens as you go through the book. It will fill your heart with a robust and sound theology of God. Revelation has the most developed doctrine of the Trinity of any book of the New Testament. Revelation teaches us the doctrine of salvation in Christ's atoning death, the mission of the church and the world, final judgment of evil, the full realization of God's new creation. Revelation's plot line, maybe most thrilling of all, is a moving visual representation of the fulfillment of the Great Commission. I'm going to say that again. The plot line of Revelation is actually a visual representation of the fulfillment of Jesus' commission to go make disciples of all nations. If you wonder how that happens, it's depicted in Revelation. It's also the clearest representation of Christian hope for resurrection, new creation, and the ending of the Bible with the city of God. Now I know that Revelation presents challenges for the reader. It speaks with a unique idiom. I recognize that. It's like a visual language that must be learned. There are key words, visual props, verbal threads, symbolic use of numbers, three, four, six, Seven, ten, one thousand are all used like a unique idiom in Revelation. They're vivid characters. 
There's a spiritual geography in the book that has a tripartite view of the world. There's heaven, there's earth, and then there's the abyss or hell. One of the great plot lines of Revelation is watching the devil be cast out of heaven to the earth and then banished below forever. Hallelujah. There's the true and the counterfeit. And this is one of the most helpful reading skills that you'll need. Everything good in Revelation has an evil counterfeit. God is counterfeited by the dragon. The son of man is counterfeited by the beast. The mark, a uh, seal of the lamb is counterfeited by the mark of the beast. The wedding feast that all who believe in Christ are invited to is counterfeited by a funeral, a mourning and lamentation of death. Hearing and seeing the true and recognizing the counterfeit is an essential skill for Christians. There's all kinds of things around us that mimic and imitate the true, the real one. And you've got to be able to spot it because if you don't, you'll fall in love with the wrong thing. You'll fall in love with the wrong thing. In one of the most visceral images of the Bible, evil is depicted like a prostitute riding on a beast and devouring lives. And that image just is jarring. And you have to turn away from that in order to see the bride and enter the holy city of God. Now, one of the challenges for churches in Revelation and challenges for churches today is somehow to be lukewarm and indifferent about Jesus Christ. I don't know how to sustain that. I mean, you watch people just leap out of their seats with a football game over a group of players that won't even be here next year. Or a coach who won't even be coaching there. And all that will change. And we go crazy for it. And yet we find the spiritual temperature of our hearts kind of low to Jesus Christ. I think that's impossible. And revelation will help you. I think it's difficult to explain how we just flirt with things that will kill us and destroy our relationship or our marriages and we just coddle around with it. Like we just are free to do that, saved by grace. Oh, I can just mess with that. Revelation will stir you into reality and say that's gonna kill you and your heart should be ice cold to that and red hot. For the things of God. Eugene Peterson says, I'm thick skinned to the Spirit's breeze. I'm dull eared to the heaven declared glory of God. 
Is there no vision that can open our eyes to the abundant life of redemption in which we are immersed by Christ's covenant? Is there no trumpet that can wake us up to the intricacies of grace, the profundities of peace, the repeated and unrepeatable instances of love that are under, around, and over us? For me and for many, revelation has done it. This book will wake us up, ignite our hearts, compel our service, amen? And we'll be blessed as we read it. In verse three, blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy. Blessed are those who hear and keep what's written in it. As we'll discover, seven is an important number in Revelation. There are lots of sevens. Seven stars, seven churches, seven bowls, seven trumpets. There are also seven blessings. This is the first one. You're blessed just by hearing Susan read it. I was blessed, weren't you? The second blessing, we have to wait all the way till chapter 14. Blessed are those who die in the Lord. They will rest from their labors and their deeds will follow them. You are blessed if you die as a Christian and your life and service to Christ will follow you. The third blessing is in chapter 16. Blessed are those who stay awake and you keep your garments on. We'll keep track of these garments along the way. It's a verbal thread, no pun intended. The fourth blessing is in chapter 19, verse 9. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. The fifth blessing in chapter 20. Blessed is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power. The sixth blessing in chapter 22, verse 7. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. And the last blessing in chapter 22, verse 14. Blessed are those who wash their robes so they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter the city by its gates. Blessed are you. John communicates what he saw to seven churches. It's a a blessing, it's a greeting that is Trinitarian in shape. From him who is, was, and is to come, God the Father, from the seven spirits before his throne. That's John's unique idiom for the Holy Spirit, as we'll see. And in verse 5, from Jesus Christ. And here you can add to your page at the end. Who is Jesus Christ in Revelation 1.5? He's the faithful martyr, the faithful witness. He's the firstborn from the dead. That means he's the beginning of God's new creation. He's the ruler of the kings on earth. And this phrase is one of the most deeply encouraging phrases in the Bible. Who's in charge? Jesus Christ. He's in charge of the kings of this world. Jesus Christ is the one who loves us. And has freed us from our sins by his blood. 
incredible truth about who Jesus is. Jesus' saving work turns us into a kingdom, a realm filled with people, priests to his God and Father. And this is the language that's used in Exodus 19 of Israel's vocation after the Exodus from Egypt. We're rescued from slavery and turned into a royal priestly people. What does it mean to be part of the people of God? It's to have this purpose in the world. What do priests do? Priests pray and priests mediate the presence of God. Priests in the Old Testament are entrusted with the word of God. They copy it and they teach it. And that's what we're called to do. Know God's word, communicate it to others, pray for the world and for others and bring people to God. If you ever wondered, like, what's your purpose? Now, I know we ask that, and we tend to ask that. But we tend to ask it around the question, what's my purpose? As though, like, what am I going to do? Right? I've found in my first 50-plus years in this world that my purpose gets clearer and more meaningful when I stop asking what I want to do and just try to start living out what God's already told me to do. And when I do that, I find that my purpose is realized. John says that Jesus is coming with the clouds. Every eye will see him, those who pierced him. All the tribes will wail on account of him. For those who are with us in the fall, I hope you recognize this phrase. Behold, he's coming with the clouds. Because that, even though John doesn't quote or tell us it's from Daniel 7 it's a clear allusion to Daniel 7 in fact John never tells us the name and chapter and verse Jesus is coming with the clouds that's the vision of Daniel 7 the son of man who receives an everlasting kingdom he's coming every eye will see him even those who pierced him John 19 tells us that Jesus was pierced on the cross. And all the tribes of the earth, and now, beloved, this is a challenging and important verb here, will wail. You'll see that other translations will say will mourn for him. What will happen to the tribes of the earth in Revelation? If you'd asked me this five years ago, I would have told you that the tribes of the earth will wail and lament because they're about to be judged. That's what I would have told you. But I've changed my mind. I've changed my mind because the verb that's used here, every time this verb is used in the scripture, it means mourning for repentance. It means that Jesus Christ is going to come back and that when he comes back, there'll be some people from everywhere who have mourned the fact that he was pierced. And when you mourn the death of Jesus for the sin of the world, that's a prelude for conversion. 
Now that doesn't mean that every single person who ever lived becomes a Christian. God's clear that his righteous judgment does come on all who do not mourn and repent for their sin. But what this is saying early on in the book is that prior to Jesus' return in visible glory, all nations, some from all nations, will come to believe. The Father says, I'm Alpha and Omega, who is, was, and is to come. Revelation 1.8, the Father speaks, and God the Father only speaks twice in the entire book. He speaks here, and then again in chapter 21, verse 5. God, the Almighty, the Pantocrator, the one with all power, speaks twice on the Alpha and the Omega. And this is a great place to preach this passage because I'm looking at this picture of Christ. And as you, don't do it now, but when you leave the service, stand up and look at the stained glass window. And the book that Jesus is holding are the Greek letters Alpha and Omega. He's the beginning and the end, the A to the Z. That means something really profound for us this morning, that Jesus is the one who starts things and finishes them. It means that the time horizon of Revelation is from the first century till Christ's return and what happens in between. John says he's your brother and partner in three essentials of the Christian life. Tribulation, kingdom, and perseverance. Those are the essentials of the Christian life. We're going to face difficulty, distress. Our January series was about that. Light and momentary affliction, same word. Affliction, hardship, distress. Sometimes that's the distress of my own temptation to sin. Sometimes that's the distress of worldly persecution. Sometimes it's the distress of false teaching. Sometimes it's the distress of a heart that's just cold, even though all my theology is perfect. We share in that, beloved, but we also share in the kingdom and we share in the endurance. John was on Patmos. I was on Patmos this summer. It's an island about 35 miles off the coast. He was there. He was exiled for his preaching ministry and he was in the spirit on the Lord's day and in the spirit on the Lord's day, Christians gather and worship on Sunday. He hears, it's his first hearing, he hears the sound like a trumpet. So notice that's the first hearing that we have. He hears this like a trumpet sound telling him to write what he sees and send it to seven churches. The seven churches of Revelation are real cities. They are cities that are starting in Ephesus, form a circle route that is a common route actually of the postal service in the first century. It's a circular route to visit these cities. I've been to most of these cities. The ruins of them today are still spectacular. Now, there are more churches in this area at this time, but it is sent to these seven, in a sense, representative of the church as a whole. You remember the church of Ephesus. Paul ministered there for three years. Timothy became the pastor there, and now this is the next generation of the church in Ephesus. We'll talk more about this church next Sunday. But I want you to have in your mind that these are real places, real congregations, real Christians, and they may face slightly different challenges than you and I, but they are of a similar nature. 
And just like the book of Romans is applicable to the Christian life, these letters are applicable to the Christian life. It's sent to all of them. We'll look at the churches in more detail in the next couple of weeks. But right now, in this morning, I want you to see what he sees. When, Je- when John turns to see the voice, he sees a glorious vision of Jesus, the Son of Man. He sees Jesus clothed with a long robe, a golden sash, the hair of his head white like white wool, like snow, his eyes like a flame of fire, his voice like the roar of many waters. He's holding seven stars in his hand. Jesus is so glorious in Revelation 1, filled with such radiance and power that John falls at his feet as though dead. Revelation 1 is my go-to passage whenever I feel discouraged. If you tell me, I've been reading the news, I'm so discouraged about where the world is going, I'm going to tell you to read Revelation 1. When you get distressed and distraught about the nature of the church and its struggles in the world, I'm going to tell you to read Revelation 1. Revelation 1 is a glorious picture of Jesus Christ. And the camera moves in close. We see him as he's depicted in Revelation or in Daniel 7. He is exalted. He is Lord. He is the ruler of the kings of the earth. He's holding the stars in his hand. And then he has this very peculiar feature that is not present in Daniel 7. The unique addition to Revelation 1 is a sword. Now, uh, if you can handle a sword, you may want to try this one. This is a real sword. It's heavy. It's sharp. I'm going to do my best not to drop it on my foot or on this stage. Now, we're used to seeing swords, though, on the side, aren't we? But this sword is unusual. It comes out of Jesus' mouth. It's the first of what scholars call the key props of Revelation. Key items that you're supposed to see and notice. And these items are woven into the plot line. It's also a good test of our reading skills because I like to sometimes ask people, when we see Jesus in glory, are you expecting a sword coming out of his mouth. I've yet to find someone who says, oh yes, yes, because I believe the Bible. Some of the imagery and symbolism of Revelation were already equipped. What's a sword doing coming out of his mouth? We don't have to make it up. The Bible actually describes it. Some of you might be thinking right now of Hebrews 4 that the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Others might be thinking of Isaiah 49 too, where the servant of the Lord speaks and says, He made God that has made my mouth like a sharp sword. The sword coming out of Jesus' mouth is used in a remarkable way in Revelation. It's not a sword that's used to slay people. It's a sword 
that's used to free them. In Revelation 2, the church that's struggling with false teaching, Jesus says, I'll come with my sword. He's not going to come and just decapitate the congregation and say, you did your best, you failed, that's it. He brings the sword to set us free from lies. Amen? Amen? And when Jesus comes again in glory in Revelation 19, he comes with the sword as well, and the sword is in his mouth, and his sword then defeats what is false and condemns what is evil. When we get to Revelation 19, the armies of heaven are a very peculiar army. They are a weaponless army. The sword coming out of Jesus' mouth is a sword that defeats what's untrue and converts the nations by the truth of the gospel. The key prop this morning for you to remember is the sword. And you know what? As you leave, you're going to leave armed the way that God's people are armed in the book of Revelation. They're not armed with weapons. They're armed with a word. And if you really want to be part of God's instrumental means of conquering evil, then you must be mastered by this word and be a disseminator of this word. Fear not, Jesus says, I'm first the last, the living one, and I have the keys of death and hell. Jesus interprets a couple of items from the imagery, and he says, the mystery. Now, when you see the word mystery in Revelation, that's signaling to you as a reader what you're seeing means something, okay? It doesn't mean mystery doesn't mean secret. It actually means the opposite. (laughs) Mystery in the Bible means mystery, I'm about to tell you something, not to hide something. Jesus says the mystery of the stars is that the stars represent the angels that are going to be sent with communication. There are a lot of angels in Revelation. And the seven lampstands are the churches. This opening vision of Revelation centers us, beloved, on what this book's all about. It raises our expectations because Revelation's a vision of Jesus Christ. It is the word of Christ to us as the church. It's a book that promises blessing, amen? If you hear it and you take it in, you're gonna be blessed. One of the things we're gonna do this this spring, because this is a blessing that must not be hoarded, we're gonna gonna invite missionaries from our church who are scattered all around the world to be the scripture readers on Sunday morning. And they're gonna come in and they're gonna read from the wall from different parts of the world. So they get that blessing. And we'll be blessed as we hear it. Well, this morning as we start, we always have to ask ourselves, how does this text call us to action? I've got five. This morning, I feel called to action, number one, to immerse yourself in Revelation. I want you just to immerse yourself in it. 
I've been uh, listening to Revelation. It takes just a little bit over an hour to hear the whole thing. Every time I hear it, I think I've listened 40 times. Every time I hear it, I'm kind of seeing something a little bit new, but the, the, the imagery and the plot line are starting to feel a little bit more familiar. You can do this with a Dwell app, Bible Gateway. You could, I encourage you to have an audio version and also develop a way to do a rapid reading of the whole. Don't get lost in the details, but see the whole. Number two, I know this is a big ask. It's big. Brace yourselves. I'm holding on. <laughs> Can we be open just to new, new discoveries? Yes. I know that's a big ask. I'm saying it to myself. Christians have taken different approaches to revelation over the centuries. I'm deeply aware of that. But something that they all have in common, those different approaches, are that they love Jesus Christ and want to serve him in the world. And there's something to be gained from those different approaches. So if you've taken a different approach or been exposed to a different reading of this, I just want you to be open to God speaking this word now to all of us here at this time. And that also means if you know nothing about Revelation, that's, that's okay. If you've been a lifelong student of Revelation, that's okay too. There's much to discover. Number three, the equipment that you're going to need. I'm going to call out equipment that you're going to need along the way. And one of the most important items of equipment in the book of Revelation are ears. All of the letters to the churches end with a plea for everyone who has ears to use them. I don't mean that to be redundant. But it's critical. Sometimes, beloved, we do too much talking. Amen? Am I the only one in this sanctuary who regrets a few things I've said? We need to be people who are great listeners to God. And if you're a great listener to God, then what you say will be more meaningful and more true and more life-giving. Listen with disciple ears. Now, you're going to have to listen well because Revelation is a noisy book. It really is. It's loud. Trumpets, huge choirs, eagles screeching as they fly through, the sound of lament, a marriage celebration, thunderous hymns and anthems. Guess how many hymns there are? Seven. And the hymns advance and confirm the plot line. It's a loud book, but we've got to hear. That's number three. And number four, this is from the heart of your pastor, is to invite the Lord to purify your imagination. Most of us have seen things that we wish we hadn't. We've seen a show that we wish we hadn't. We've looked at something that we now regret. We've taken things in that have made us see the world in a way that's demonic, whether we know it or not. And we wonder, how do I get my mind pure again? Revelation can do that. That's a powerful way of just cleansing your mind. 
by giving you true things to see and think about. Number five. I'm always challenging Pastor Scott, don't, don't sneak in extra verbs. <laughs> He's going to call me out on this. <clears throat> don't be afraid or overwhelmed, but focus your attention on Christ. That's the main verb. Focus your attention on Christ. How many times do you think Christ is mentioned in Revelation? Seven. Seven times Christ is named. How many times do you think the name Jesus appears? It's a double seven. It's 14. In the idiom of Revelation, seven is a number of completeness and four is a number that's used to describe the full scope of the world. Four corners of the world, four winds, the people's tongues, tribes and nations, four words that describe the inhabitants of all the earth. The most frequent designation of Jesus in the book of Revelation, as we'll see, is lamb. Seven times four is 28. And lamb is used 28 times. This is a carefully constructed work. Seven Christ, 14 Jesus, 28 lamb. I love art and as I looked at a lot of different artistic representations of the book of Revelation, I found one work of art that I just found deeply moving. It was a the, it's a theological summary of the whole book. And it's called Lamb of God. And it's a beautiful piece of art. And the artist's initials are in the bottom corner of the work. I looked up this woman and I was delighted to discover her name is Evangelia Philippides, which is a very Greek name. I found out that her art, she's been an artist for 40 years, and I found out that she lives in Columbus, even though she grew up in Athens. She teaches at the Columbus College of Art and Design, and her work has appeared in, in all kinds of national publications. I wrote to her. I said, my wife grew up in Athens. I said, I've been deeply moved by your depiction of the Lamb. The Lamb of God, beloved, is the hero of the story. The tree of life rises behind the Lamb, the city of God in the distance. I said, could we use your art in this series, she said, I'd be honored if you did. And then she said, I also have this work in color. And she sent me this. The lamb is the hero of the story. 28 times through the narrative, we'll see it's the lamb of God who defeats evil. It's the Lamb of God who offers his life for yours. It's the Lamb of God who is worthy to open 
the sealed book of God's will and carry it out. And forever and ever and ever and ever, all of the redeemed will sing forever. Worthy is the Lamb. And when you find that your heart is exploding with adoration for the Lamb of God, then you'll know that the things of this world have broken loose. And when you know that if I can just speak of the Lamb of God who died for the sin of the world as a subject of your greatest thoughts, of your most frequent speech, if you find yourself all of a sudden not talking as much about the things that you regularly talk about and you find yourself just thinking, I just want to talk a little bit more about the Lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world and who dipped his robe in his own blood and has made me forgiven. O Lamb of God who purchased my life. It's the Lamb of God who spoke to his disciples on the night and he was betrayed and said, this is my body broken for you. It's the Lamb of God who said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood poured out for you. And so we come, beloved, as we begin this series rightly to adore the Lamb who was slain. This isn't the table of Kenwood Baptist Church. It's the table of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. And make this your prayer that you would receive his mercy and live for him this day.